Mr. Derek Veenhoff. He's better known as Deke. Drinking liquor with DJ Deke, we out laughing. Yo, Deke. Welcome back, everybody, to the Decast. I'm here with Dr. Sean Baker. Dr. Sean Baker, welcome. Derek, thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. So I just got done, just got done exercising. So if I'm breathing too hard, that's, that's why I'm not <laughs> no too worries. excited about the questions. <laughs> so um, you are the reason I have you on is you're a proponent of the carnivore diet. Some call you forefather or the kind of ex, the leading expert or the the at least the most vocal. Um, Lately, um, you've made the rounds on Joe Rogan, hang out with Dr. Drew and the Swole Patrol and that. Um, you've got your own podcast. And um, you, why don't you give people a little background? You were a war, war surgeon and uh, you were in the Air Force. Yeah, I've got a kind of an interesting background. You know, I, I went to college, got a degree in biology, uh, went to medical school. Actually, I left medical school to play professional rugby, went down to New Zealand, did that for a while. I uh, came back in, wasn't ready to quit playing rugby, so I, so I joined the military uh, and was a nuclear weapons guy for a nuclear weapons launch officer for about five years. And during that time, I played rugby for the Armed Forces team until I got tired of getting my head kicked in in the rugby pitch. And then I went back to medical school. Uh, you know, the Air Force paid for it at that point. And then when I got out, they sent me to Afghanistan, where I did, you know, quite a bit of time doing trauma surgery. Uh, and then came back in, served out my my time, you know, as a as a, you know, not a civilian, but as a active duty, you know, military physician. Then I went into civilian practice for a number of years. Uh, and then I kind of, you know, as I got older, you know, I'm in my 50s now. But was, when I was in my 40s, I saw, despite the fact that I was still very athletically uh, capable and, and competing at a very high level, I saw my health start to decline a little bit and started playing with nutrition. And I went through a whole bunch of different diets and finally settled on this, you know, kind of seemingly crazy meat-based diet, which, you know, I've been a proponent of for the last several years and been doing it myself. And, uh, you know, as you know, it's become more popular and certainly controversial. And there's a lot of people that, you know, that did adopt this and then they, they become very adamant adherents to it because they, they do so well with it. And so it's, 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 you know, it's interesting. It's kind of rattling some nutritional cages and, you know, we're kind of kicking up kicking up rocks and seeing what comes out. So we're finding a lot of interesting things that are happening that, that most people wouldn't expect to happen. So I think it's very much uh, questioning a lot of our nutritional uh, beliefs. Right. You say, you, you mentioned that people who try it tend to stick with it. I, I had read that 70% of people who try a vegan diet um, end up dropping off. Is that an accurate assessment? Have you seen that percentage around or... I mean, regarding the, the vegan stuff, it's it's really hard to say. I mean, there was a kind of an informal study done. You know, I wouldn't call it a real valid scientific study, but they did survey some people and they found about an 84 percent attrition rate. So basically most people that tried it kind of dropped out for various reasons, uh, health being the, the, the main reason people just didn't feel as good on it. You know, there's a lot of data out there. There's probably three to four times as many ex-vegans as there are active vegans. So for most people that try it, they do end up dropping out. And you know, I think the people that really are committed to it, I think a certain percentage of them do uh, manage to maintain reasonably good health with it. But then there's a lot of them that maintain it just because of, you know, ethical and ideological sure. beliefs. And yeah. I think the thing with the carnivore diet, we don't, you know, at least I certainly don't attach any sort of dogmatic belief to it. I think, you know, I think ultimately you have to find and do what works best for you from a health standpoint. And then hopefully your ethical and religious or whatever beliefs line up with that. But I mean, I think what I see is a lot of people, and when I say, 
I'd say there's not that many people that stay where the only thing they ever eat is meat and water. I think that's 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 impractical for most people. And even even myself, who's a big advocate, I mean, I'll have things outside of just I'll have eggs, I'll have dairy, I'll have fish, you know, and stuff like that. I mean, I had a piece of cake on my son's birthday. I mean, it's not a <laughs> yeah. it's not a religion for me. It's just how I feel best and perform best. And so I think ultimately what we'll see with this diet is most people will do it for a period of time. You know, there there are certainly people out there that have significant health challenges, whether it's autoimmune disease or, or gastrointestinal problems like Crohn's disease or also colitis, where they find if they deviate much at all, it really they really pay for it. And so those people will probably elect to ma- maintain fairly strict, you know, strict adherence to a fairly restrictive diet. Um, other people, most people that do it, they feel so good on it that they ultimately stick fairly close to it. And, and what I'd like to say is they, they become what we call carnivore adjacent, where they do mostly meat. And then they might put in, you know, a few items here and there that they still enjoy that don't seem to bother. I mean, that can be- that's like Dr. Drew. He he's sort of most mostly meat. He's got the bacon and all that that he's doing, but he also deviates a little bit. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's I think there's nothing whatsoever wrong with that. I mean, I think there's reasons why people might have problems with certain foods, and I think that's fair to say. I don't think we should be in the business of proclaiming any one particular food, even if it's meat, as universally helpful, healthy for all people. Or, you know, claiming that fruits and vegetables are universally healthy for all people when clearly they're not. And so I think you just have to find out. Now, I do think that most humans have a pretty good capacity to tolerate, you know, meat, you know, if they're, particularly if they're healthy. You know, and I think there's people that have digestive issues that are longstanding that may have more trouble, you know, if they've got problems with you know, bile secretion or acid secretion or some some other issues that may make it more difficult. But that's I don't think that's a default setting for human beings. So. Mm-hmm. Having said just, that, yeah, go ahead. Would you describe what you do? Is it is it? Are you trying to convert or just educate and advocate? Would advocacy be a good word to over yeah, I mean, describe? What you- yeah, I mean, I'm certainly an advocate of a lot of things. I'm I'm an advocate of people getting off drugs, people you know, treating health issues with lifestyle. I think that uh, I don't think advocate is too strong of a word. I, I don't necessarily know that I want to convert anybody. I do want to let people know it's an option to them, and I do think the uh, sort of fears around meat, particularly red meat, are misguided and based on pretty weak science in my view. And I think when you accurately test this and and, and, and really isolate this as a, you know, unique variable, then, then we see that meat can be a very, not only can be, but is a very healthy part of a diet. And I think, I think, that, I think there's a lot of education that needs to, done, needs to be done. And I think there's a lot of, um, unfortunately, there's a lot of profit out there in in demonizing meat, whether it's claiming that it's an environmental hazard or a health hazard. And there's a lot of people lining up to invest money in alternate forms of protein and meat, including guys like Bill Gates, Richard Branson, Tyson Foods, Cargill Foods, these big, you know, processed food companies that would like for you and I to eat beyond meat burgers and impossible burgers. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's just a big profit. That's the manufactured meat. Yeah, those are, those are the, those are the, those are, those are the, uh, you know, plant, plant-based meats, basically, you know, which are typically seed oil and some sort of vegetable protein and, and, and a number of different chemicals. So that there. would be separate from the, um, I forget the name of the company that's actually growing meat. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a couple companies. Well, there's actually several companies out there that are, that are trying to do what's called cell cultured meat. Those, I think Memphis Meats is one of them. Memphis one of the Meats, that's the one, yeah. And that involves taking uh, cells from a cow. And, and, and the process from that is actually pretty bizarre if you, if you if you wanted to go into that it's not any in any way more ethical and, and probably environmentally worse than, than you know meat from a cow quite honestly mm-hmm. and so but but again there's there's the people want to paint it as this uh 
clean version of meat and the safe version of meat that and you know they're doing a lot in, in, in advance to market that to to build up an audience for it and again there's a lot there i mean there's literally you know i think fake meat is uh estimated to be about an 11 billion dollar industry right now and by 2025 it's projected to go to 25 billion dollars and so there's a lot of money in this and so whenever there's a lot of money there's a lot of uh you know information that goes out there to support the product whether it's truthful or not and, and they sure. tend to tell half truths and twist the twist the data unfortunately yeah um now for someone who's sort of not from a particular diet or doesn't choose a particular diet or might be a layman like myself uh, we, we listen to uh, people like you talk and and then you see some of the counter arguments out there um, like from these vegan youtubers and whatnot uh, you know there's a lot of um, some people have criticized you it's like they call it you're an asshole or vitriolic or whatever right and I know that you kind of your thing is you just kind of get a kick out of it and you're not you're not too concerned I, I don't think with um, this kind of being perfectly rhetorically sound you know like I feel like you just kind of wing it and that's just who you are and you, you're not too concerned with being polite to everybody and I think you know you have that whole side of things where people are just all about politeness and and that's the the, the most important thing but how would you describe like have you had um, any good faith arguments with vegans out there um, or do you tend to um, always kind of butt heads with them yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a very interesting point. And yeah, I mean, there's certainly, I, I sort of straddle a lot of different fences. You know, I'm in the fitness community because I'm an athlete. I'm in the science community because I'm a physician. And I'm in, I'm in the, just a general community because I just care, generally care about the future and people's health. And I realize that, I mean, this is literally a, you know, kind of a battle for the future of nutrition and it affects our children and i'm very passionate about that and i realize that there's a lot of propaganda out there being played and i you know i liken it to bring in you know bringing a knife to a gunfight and so if you want to sit there and politely wait for studies on all meat diets which may take 20 years to come to fruition mm -hmm. you're going to be waiting a long time meanwhile the other folks pete is going to be putting up ads with cows between two polite people in the bed saying you know it's going to ruin your sex life and all the, all the bs they put out there so i'm very vocal about criticizing what I consider propaganda and BS and I'm not afraid to um, put up counter studies all the time even if I know that there are flaws with the studies because that's what's exactly what, what's being done on the other side and so you're always playing defense and anytime somebody puts up just a, the silliest statement you know they show this picture of vegan arteries and vegetarian arteries and right. meat eater arteries and it's total BS but you've got to spend half an hour debunking that and, and that that's very time consuming and it's frustrating. And most people tune out. If I've got to sit there and spend 20 minutes telling you why something some vegan said was wrong, yeah. by the time I can debunk that argument, you've tuned out and moved on. So I think the counter is you have to put out your own 10-second soundbite to try to convince people. And so I realize, you know, I mean, we can look at our American political or any political election these days anyway. It's it's all about five-second soundbites and who can, yeah. who, can, who can grab the microphone and who can yell the loudest. And so I realize what kind of uh you know what kind of situation we're in you know and, and, and you know and i put up plenty of studies on, on my social media i put up studies all the time and you know most people read them and yawn and say oh that's nice and i get you know maybe 10 percent the response rate but if i put up something and say look how silly this vegan was i get you know 500 responses and so it's it's just knowing what the way the system works right now and you know yes i did interact you know particularly early on with with a lot of vegans and i would make arguments and it would always end up in some vitriolic, you know, them calling me a murderer or 
you know, this and that. And so, I, you know, and I would often just ask him a simple question. I would say, if your health depended upon you eating an animal product to get healthier, if you were sick, would you do it? And they would invariably say no. And so then I would just say, well, then I, I can't, I can't have a discussion with you because you're not a rational person. And so I know I'm dealing with a religious person. It's not that I think all vegans or, or vegetarians are irrational or, or hateful or religious ideologues. It's just the ones that seem to be very vocal on social media, which I often interact with, which which sure. are you know, the YouTubers and whatnot. Yeah. And so, I mean, I just, uh, you know, if anybody sits down with me and wants to have a rational conversation, that's fine. And I do that all the time. It's just that I find in the in the in the social media spirits, it's not very easy to do. It's very difficult, and you know, it's it's, you know, it, it's just the way it is. I think you had a good one with Rob Wolf, where he was trying to he criticized you a bit, but he also he wasn't. Um, it was the paleo guy. Uh, yeah, I went on Rob's podcast, and I don't I don't remember we got too much into the ethics. And I think Rob very much is into sustainable agriculture, and I think. You know, this is the argument I have when we talk about an ethical argument, and, I, and, and this is, I, I just don't think it's refutable. You know, if you really, I mean, if you say, what is veganism about? And, and they'll say it's about doing the least harm to animals, right. uh, you know, not exploiting them, you know, then you have to realize that all food production carries significant animal death. I mean, it doesn't matter. You, I mean, unless you're living in the tropics and picking fruit directly off the tree by yourself, uh, any food you get that that requires a crop of any nature is going to ca- cause significant animal death. You know, they, they did a study in the United States where they estimated that annually we kill about 7.3 animals in harvesting of crops. And that's not direct kills. That's just, you know, by, you know, pesticides and harvesting the food and, and misplacing or displacing them from their homes. And so if you really, truly wanted to minimize animal death and suffering, you would eat a completely grass-fed grass-finished carnivore diet because then you would eat the least amount of food that killed the least amount of animals and and that is you know unquestionable but the, they don't want to accept that as an argument because they think right, well, so it's, they think that because you actually eat an animal i mean if you don't actually eat an animal that zero animals will die because of your uh, because your diet when that's not the truth and they're saying that incidental deaths don't matter it's our intention well if your intention right. if you intention to kill the least animals then you would eat just one that was fed on grass you know, instead of, uh, you know, trying to put blame off on the, on the other guys. Right. So it's an improper or, or a differing framing of what sustainability really is on a global scale and sort of the real impact and how things actually work. They, as someone who's a vegan might try to frame it differently. You know, if you, I'm sure if you had a sustainability argument on a podcast, you know, you'd just have two sort of competing frameworks of what you're talking about. You know, I'm... Well, I, I don't even I don't think that's necessarily a sustainability argument. I think that's more of an ethical argument. You know, if your ethos huh. is I'm going to kill the least animals possible, then you can't eat a diet that involves any crops at all. And so therefore you'd say, well, then I would eat a wild caught fish or a grass fed animal and I'm going to still kill an animal, but I'm, I'm not going to kill any animals that die in the crops. And just because an animal is accidentally killed or run over by a tractor car combine, that animal doesn't care one way or the other if you intended to kill it or not. It's right. still dead. <laughs> So, right. I mean, it's 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 the same argument, you know. I mean, from a sustainability argument, then it becomes very much a much more nuanced and complicated discussion. This is something that sure. you could spend many hours on. And I, and I spend a lot of time reading the literature and, and, and going back and forth between what's the best way to feed people. And there really are no simple solutions. They all have significant problems. We are, we're facing a... Uh, population crisis, you know, when we expand out to 10 billion or 9 billion people in 2050, I mean, we're we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna have to feed them, no doubt. 
Um, there's a lot of ways and a lot of options on how you do it. And there's a lot of pros and cons to all of that. And the question becomes, do you want a malnourished, sick population? Uh, and, you know, you feed people a lot of calories, but they, they, they're lacking in nutrition. Or do you want a population that's robust and healthy? And then you deal with potentially more environmental issues. And so I think that's a, that's a big question. Right. Uh, how do you prefer, how do you cook your meat? How do, what are some various ways that you, that you, uh, you know, a lot of, I see you eat a lot of steaks, steak for breakfast. Do barbecue yeah, I eat, or, I, eat, yeah, I eat a hell of a lot of steak. Yeah. I mean, I generally, uh, I mean, I cook it all different ways. I mean, it's usually whatever's convenient for me in the summertime. I'll get out in the, out in the barbecue and just throw it on a grill even for breakfast. And I cook it that way. I usually, you know, generally I like to cook them about medium rare. I mean, there's an air fryer that I have when the weather's not good. I've got this nice little grill called an auto wild grill. That's like a, goes up to 1500 degrees in about two minutes, which is a nice way to cook these things, you know, another, another way. Sometimes I'll sous vide them. Um, you know, if I, if I, once in a while I'll reverse sear them in a cast iron pan. The only problem with that, it makes a mess and drives my girlfriend crazy when I get grease <laughs> everywhere. So I, <laughs> I've got to make a concession to keep the house cleaner. So, but uh, yeah, I mean, those, those different ways. And I, I don't really worry about uh, high heat cooking. I, I, I can go into why that's not as big of an issue as I think people believe it is, but I don't mind uh, searing my meat so it tastes good. You know, sure, except there's that, that, the carcinogenic thing where they get into the, the charred, um, I forget what yeah, the name I mean, is now, but the... Yeah, there's a couple compounds uh, called heterocyclic amines and polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons that are generated with high heat cooking for really any food. It doesn't have to be meat, but it's any food. And that's one of the postulated reasons why they mechanistically think that red meat might have an increased risk of colon cancer. And so that's one of the mechanisms by which they, they try to support the epidemiologic claims. Um, I, I I don't think there's much validity to that. I mean, we can go into that if you want to, but I mean, to suffice to say, it doesn't bother right. me that much. So from what I gather, uh, you're not too dogmatic about the types of, of meat. Uh, well, like you said, you deviate a bit. So like herbs and spices, condiments, coffee, water, like you kind of mix it up a little bit. You're not too strict with all these extra things like that. Yeah, I mean, for me personally, uh, I don't have too much problem with those things. Yeah, I'm not a coffee drinker, so I, I would, you know, for me, I don't like coffee. But I mean, if I want to put some spices on the meat, if I want to, uh, you know, do different ways to flavor it, you know, I, I don't mind doing that. You know, sometimes every once in a while, I'll eat something that's like real hot or spicy and, you know, it might upset my digestion a little bit. But, I, you know, like I said, I don't do it all the time, but I don't, I, at the same time, I'm not panicking if i go to a restaurant and they've got you know there's a there's a few pieces of right. you know seasoning on my on my steak i don't care i usually enjoy it it's fine and i think that's the you know ultimately what i i try to get the point across is i think human beings you know largely you know evolved to eat quite a bit of meat i think that's that's been our default diet for as much as long as possible as we could we could make it our default diet i mean when we kind of killed off all these big juicy animals, you know, 20,000 years ago or whenever it was, they went, went away and that's debatable exactly when that occurred. Um, then we had to kind of diversify our diet more. And I think that's a small part of our evolution. I think most humans, again, if they make meat the, the main focus of their diet, you know, and I know there's a push to make meat a condiment and just be a little sliver of your, you, right. know, you should have a slice, a tiny slice of meat on six pounds of spinach and 13, you know, you know, cups of quinoa a day or something, something crazy like that. But I think that's the opposite of how humans are actually designed. I think we don't, we're not, we're not going to do that well in that particular scheme. I mean, that, that, that is probably better than the, the garbage that we eat now. I mean, all the seed oil and the sugary high fructose corn syrup and the refined, uh, 
refined products that we have. But yeah. uh, but I mean, I think still, I think from a, from a nutrition standpoint, you know, meat based diet is still going to beat that quite quite easily. I find it funny that there's nobody that's purporting the sugar diet. It seems like all sides nowadays are fine with um, you know being against sugar. Like you don't see anybody popping up that's like a sugar enthusiast, or do you? That I don't know of. There are a couple. You know, there are kind of a couple people in the vegan camp that claim that sugar doesn't cause any problems. There, there are some people that think that sugar in moderation is fine. And, and you know, I mean, I think there's some. There's actually some data that would support that. But I mean, I, I don't think anyone's supporting a high sugar diet. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think if, even if you look at, you know, if you ask, you know, even these the the whole food plant based supporters, and you say, should you be eating a bunch of refined carbohydrate, sugar, and and seed oils, and most of them will say no because those, there are plenty of overweight, sick, obese vegans out there and then you ask them what they're eating and they're eating oreo cookies and you know the other the other vegan products that are that are junk and no one's no one's really a proponent of that and so i think when we look at the common denominator of what we should for sure get out of our diet i think it it comes pretty clear that most people uh shouldn't be eating that stuff regardless of what your belief is yeah um do you do supplements you know you're you're drug free but do you, do you supplement with anything no, I don't do any supplements. Um, I mean, the only thing I would cons- if you would consider it a supplement is I put salt on my food. I don't that I don't I don't really consider that a supplement. I don't take a multivitamin. I don't take vitamin C. I don't take any really anything. I mean, it's basically just the food I get. And I think that's you know honestly, I think human beings are designed to exist without supplements. As crazy as that sounds. I mean, <laughs> um, so I've seen like pictures of you uh, grocery shopping. You have some ground beef in there, and then someone will comment, "Aren't you worried about the antibiotics?" And I think in one comment you just said, "No, no worries." Like uh, for the different uh, grades of meat and, and types of meat, do you do you care at all, or can it be sort of anything under the sun? Yeah, I mean, I, I take a very big picture uh, uh, sort of uh, view on all this stuff, and so. If we look at what's in a human diet and we say that, you know, there's absolute garbage out there, there's, you know, there's just the Pop-Tarts and the, and, the, and the Twinkies and the, you know, the potato chips, that's just absolute garbage in the diet. And so when you get rid of that, then you're left with, you know, healthier foods. And some people say fruits and vegetables, and, and I will say animal products, you know, meat, eggs, fish, you know, potentially dairy. I think once you get to that point, you've you've solved ninety five percent, ninety eight percent of your problems. Okay, so when you start, you know, sort of saying, "Oh my gosh, you had a hamburger that that was that came from a cow that was fed an antibiotic, you know, six months before it was slaughtered, or three months before it was slaughtered," which really doesn't even show up in the meat. Quite honestly, there's actually very tight regulations around antibiotic administration in, in these animals, and they're not allowed to go to slaughter if they've had antibiotics, sure, you know, anytime before slaughter. So it doesn't really show up in any appreciable amounts. And so if we think there are all kinds of contaminants that show up in everything we eat. You know, there's there's pesticides, there's, you know, residual things in the food. I mean, there's stuff in our water. I mean, these things are so small that I don't really find yeah. that worrying about these tiny things makes a huge difference. If right. You know what I mean? So I think, you know, if but if, if you can't afford to eat grass-finished, grass-fed, raised by monks in the in the in the in the yeah. Tibetan Alps with, you know, and they, 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 they let them drink their tears. I mean, it's not that big of a deal. And so, right. I, you know, I think, you know, there's people who say, oh my gosh, you ate a, you ate a hamburger that was from uh, a fast food place that, that wasn't grass fed or organic, you know, and they're going to complain about that. Meanwhile, they're eating ice cream and cookies. And, and I'm like, well, where are you, <laughs> you know, how, how do you, how do you justify making that comparison? So I, I, I don't, I, I, I sort of 
see people that kind of, that, you know, we have this virtue signaling, oh, I'm better than you because I only eat the finest of the fine. And, and, and But most people can't afford that, quite honestly, particularly in the United States. You have to eat what you can afford sometimes. And so I try not to tell people to do a diet, but, but, but only 5% of the population can actually afford to do that. It doesn't make sense. I think even eating cheap ground beef from the cheapest restaurant, you know, grocery store you can find is still a tremendous improvement over uh, most of what people eat. And so that's right. my take. That's my take on that. Um, how how much, if you don't mind me asking, do you spend, say, in a given time interval on on food? Like, did your spending change from your diet before? You were on a keto for two and a half years or so before carnivore, and then before that, was it just like American Standard Diet or? Yeah, I mean, I had a, a you know, I had a fairly about a six year progression of diets, but yeah, I was on, on a ketogenic diet for a couple of years before I switched to a carnivore diet. Really, my. Um, it, it kind of varies for me. You know, I mean, I'll be honest, I get people that send me meat to try. So I get a lot of it kind of free, which is kind of nice. Right. Uh, so I'll, so I'll use the extra money I have to buy nicer steaks. But I mean, if I wasn't doing that, I would probably spend, and what I was doing before that, I said about 150 us dollars a week for me, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's about, you know, maybe 20 bucks a day, which is, you know, for a guy who's six foot five, 245 pound and, 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 and a pretty, you know, high level athlete, that's not that much money on food. I don't spend any money on supplements. Right, it's not outrageous, but maybe a little higher than the average. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and, you know, the average person would eat about half as much as I do. I mean, I eat, you know, two kilos of meat a day. You know, uh, you know, if I'm, I don't know if you can. Are you guys still using kilos? I think you guys, you guys are using kilos out there, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, you know, the average person would eat about half that. So the average person could probably do it for, you know, ten dollars U.S. Um, and, and and be just fine. And I don't, I don't think that's that's two cups of coffee in, in most places. So I don't think that's unattainable for most people. And and many people can do it even cheaper. I mean, I've seen people uh, do it on ground beef and eggs and they can spend $5 a day and, and be fine. Right. So it's very doable if you want to do it. It's just, if you want to eat some nicer steaks from time to time, then it gets more expensive, obviously. Hmm. Uh, so, so we've mentioned that, um, you know, there's no long-term studies of this. Uh, I don't think there's a ton of long-term studies on, on a lot of different diets, but, um, specifically what, for you, what were the main benefits that you immediately noticed? Um, there's out there, you've heard, you hear things anecdotally like, uh, autoimmune, uh, deficiencies being fixed and, um, various things like that. Were there any, what were the immediate um, changes that you noticed? Yeah, for me, I mean, when I say immediate, I mean a period over a couple of months because I didn't, I didn't have like something happen the next day. But over a period of a couple of months, so when I went from a uh, kind of a standard diet to a paleo diet to a keto diet, I, you know, I saw improvements in body composition, mood, energy, those things, you know, improve. My sleep got better, uh, blood pressure got better. As I went into a carnivorous diet, I mean, I still had a few things. You know, my body composition was was still. It was decent, but it wasn't quite as good. Uh, my strength was was decent, uh, but when I went on a carnivorous diet, my strength went up, about, you know, pretty significantly. I mean, objectively, about ten percent in about two months, and that was despite the fact that I didn't change the way I worked out. I, you know, I've been training for something like forty years, and so I was, you know, doing what I always do. But my strength just got better. I saw that I had uh, some tendonitis around my knee, which I'd had for ten years, and, and nothing seemed to make it better. And when I went on a carnivore diet, about two months in, I noticed it went away, and it's gone. It's been gone for two years now, which I thought was fairly remarkable. As you know, as an orthopedic surgeon, I dealt with tendonitis my whole life, and dealing with patients with that over the years, and I knew kind of all the tricks and the tips on how I would treat it as a physician, but it just still wouldn't go away. And then when I would switch diets, it went away, which I thought was pretty startling to me. You know, I think. Uh, 
Um, libido went up, you know, sex drive went up. Um, my endurance, uh, exercise capacity, my recovery got better. Um, my digestion got better. You know, I think those are things that, that I noted, uh, you know, from a, you know, from, from my own personal experience. And then I've seen mm-hmm. literally thousands of people relate similar and sometimes very, you know, amazing types of things since they've mm-hmm. been doing it. Um, so some of the criticisms out there, um, I mean, you, you did release some, uh, blood work info. And so you have these various, um, guys sort of going over your, your, your different numbers and, um, Maybe I'll just throw a couple at you and you can maybe kind of break them down for us or, or what you think is your angle on it. So people have mentioned that you're sort of almost clinically diabetic based on what is the blood sugar levels. So, yeah. So, I mean, they had, so I had a, I did a fasting blood glucose and a hemoglobin A1C, which were both kind of in this pre-diabetic range, right? And so the question becomes, well, that's un, that that would sort of indicate you're developing diabetes. Well, the, the, the interesting thing about that is – Diabetes, one of the markers of diabetes is we look at an elevated blood sugar, but diabetes exists in a pathophysiologic state. And there's a there's a clinical and uh, physiological thing, things that are going on when diabetes occurs. And so what typically happens with that, and this is type 2 diabetes, you know, that, that we often see present later in life. And there's all kinds of different variants in there. But the general thought is, as you become insulin resistant, uh, you know, you, you, you end up producing more and more insulin to keep your blood sugar low. And then as you sort of can't keep up with that anymore, your blood sugar tends to rise. And then you get this diabetic pathophysiology, which socially typically shows you start to get obese, you start to have high blood pressure, you start to have, uh, uh, you know, problems with your lipid profiles, you start to see, um, you know, all kinds of clinical things going on, right? And so, the, the biggest thing we, we, we see with that is this insulin resistance. And so what I did at the same time as checking my blood sugars, I checked, checked my insulin. And so when my, the, the, the problem that my insulin was super low. And so what that indicates, and there were several metrics that I used to look at my insulin sensitivity. And there's things called the triglucose, sorry, the triglyceride glucose index, uh, which you can look at this to determine your insulin sensitivity, something called the HOMA IR score, which looks at your fasting insulin and fasting glucose, that determines your your uh, your insulin sensitivity. There's a there's something called a lipid a lipoprotein insulin resistance score, which I had done also. All of those things pointed to me being extremely insulin sensitive. Um, so that kind of goes against this diabetic pathophysiology. In fact, many of the physicians that comment on that goes, it makes no sense. And so when you look at the literature, the sports literature in particular, you see that athletes engaged in extremely high intense level of athletics will exhibit high levels of blood glucose. And so when I was taking that, I was, you know, I was training at a very high level, you know, had just broken world records on the rowing machine. Um, and so that is, you know, the way I train. And so we've talked to several researchers that actually deal with Olympic and elite level athletes. And they see a lot of times that during these high level performance, they'll see blood glucose going up. And, and additionally, if you look at the literature back from the 1920s and so on and so forth, we look at populations that ate meat-based diets like the Inuit and their blood glucose was very similar. They had, they had fasting blood glucoses in the 120s, but they didn't have any signs of diabetes at all in their population. So I think that's just a normal physiologic response to a high-protein diet. 
in, in intense exercise and in eating the volume I do, and, and, and it doesn't doesn't seem to correlate with diabetic pathophysiology. Right. Um, you know, the, you know, I had my cardio. I did my 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 heart scan. You know, I did a coronary artery calcium scan, which would indicate kind of long term what's going on with the heart. And, you know, the problem with with labs is they change day to day, so they're not. They're not as reliable, and even the hemoglobin A1C we're finding out is much more dynamic than we thought it was. Um, but when I had my cardi- cardiac scan done, it was perfectly clean. My, my cardiac vessels were completely free of any calcification, which clinically indicates that I'm very, very low risk for cardiovascular disease. Um, the other thing with the blood glucose is the, the thing that we talk about when we talk about diabetes is, is uh, sort of extreme uh, variability in the blood sugar. So the blood sugar goes up and down and up and down. And the uh, my blood sugar when I was testing it after meals was rock solid. In fact, it would go, it would, it would even get lower. You know, I'd see it higher in the morning and it would get lower throughout the day. So it doesn't really point to diabetic pathophysiology. When we really look at diabetes, it's really an insulin issue much more than it is a glucose issue. And a lot of, more and more physicians are starting to, to understand that. Jason Fung is a guy a Canadian up in Toronto that you may or may not know that is very much uh, a proponent of that, that that style of thinking about diabetes. So as a, so from my perspective, as someone who's not an expert and, and not really no scientific background, you know, you see somebody out there that criticizes you for these um, very one plus one equals two sort of diagnostics on, on things like diabetes or the, they talk about your low testosterone or high cholesterol, these things, um, you know, when you, you, but then you look at you you as a person and, and you don't have any you know any symptoms any issues that that these people are describing that you might exhibit if you were what they're kind of painting you to be and then I th- is it fair to say that um, it's just nutrition in, in general and um, which you mentioned these different doctors have different ways of looking at it um, you know the the jury is not out so to speak like uh, on all this stuff like there's still so much research to be done um, you know even veganism itself like mainstream was in the 60s and 70s right like how how much study has really been done on all these various things and how many things that you know that they used to think cause certain things are just not quite the case or it's just there's so many variables amongst various people that's sort of what i'm gathering from all the the info that's out there if that makes sense as a layman that they you can't just you can't just pinpoint uh what something you're against and pinpoint all these things and just put this person into a box and say oh you're diabetic therefore like meat is unhealthy and just make this obtuse statement it seems to be much more nuanced yeah, I mean, the one thing that most people making comments, you know, one of the reasons you have clinicians and physicians is because you have to be able to put things in clinical context. And so you can't just take a put. If somebody hands me a random set of lab values, I'll say something could be going on, but let me see. Let me examine the patient and see what's actually going on. So you have to exactly actually clinically examine someone to know what what's actually going on. There's a lot more things than just labs are tools that help us to put a pu- pieces of the puzzle together, like one piece of the puzzle. But if you don't have the whole picture it's really sort of silly to speculate as to what's going on. I mean, you could show me three of your lab values and I, I, you might be dead and I wouldn't know, you know, I mean, you could have, you could have, you could take, you could take blood off a corpse and get normal lab values, you know, at some point, you know, they might have a normal sodium. You say, well, he's fine, you know, but you've got to have this clinical context. But, but your point about um, trying to extrapolate population-based data, you know, and all this nutritional data we have, much of it is, is based on, epidemiology, which are these population-based studies, you look at a whole population and say, well, we seem to think that people that have higher cholesterol 
have a greater risk for cardiac disease looking at the general population. But then you take you and I out of the general population and see that our situation is not necessarily reflective of the general population. That is to say, I'm an athlete that eats a low-carb diet, and I work out every day, and I'm fit, and I'm lean, and I'm muscular, and I've got an excellent, you know, VO2 of max, and I can, you know, I can do all these things, and my cholesterol is a little high. Am I at, am, am I at high risk like the average couch potato sitting on the, sitting on the table, you know, sitting on the couch with the same cholesterol level that I have? And I would say categorically no. And so we have to, whenever there's these associations out there, you have to say, does it apply to all people in all situations? And it's more nuanced than that. And unfortunately, in medicine these days, most physicians are so overboard, burdened with so much work, so many patients, and it's, it's really become a, you know, kind of a, a high volume turnover, you know, just kind of a, you know, crank them in, crank them out type of situation where they don't have time to put everybody into context. You know, if you come in with a high cholesterol, your doctor's going to say, okay, get your cholesterol down. They may, they may, rather than they say, okay, is there, is there a reason where this is a problem? Is there vascular inflammation? Is there high levels of insulin issues? You know, are there other things going on that may make this more problematic or not? Or is it something we can just sort of watch and see how you do clinically? And I think that's a, that's a problem people run into. Um, I think the irony of it all is uh, with regards to the epidemiological studies, uh, one of the friend of the show, uh, Taylor is a epidemiologist and of all my friends, he's one that when you speak to him about these issues, um, you know, he, he understands the nuance more than anybody because that's sort of built into that whole study is when they do these population studies is, is understanding the difference between correlation and causation and that kind of thing. So the irony is that you, you do have these people that cite these studies and it's not like the whole field of epidemiology is worthless or anything. It's just that, you know, when you talk to Taylor, he, w- he would probably say that, that, you know, with, when they make this correlation, you know, hot tea or the World Health Organization, hot tea is on the carcinogenic list or, you know, probable carcinogen or glyphosate, uh, that kind of thing. You get what I'm saying? The irony there is that the epidemiologist would often understand the nuance more than someone who's citing the epidemiological uh, uh, study. So it's kind of yeah. I mean, the the problem is, and and you're you're absolutely right. I mean, ep- the epidemiology serves to generate hypothesis. Occasionally, it can point to causation if the relationships are extremely, extremely strong, as in we saw with smoking. But for the most part, most of these nutritional studies have such weak sort of correlations that it's really hard to put causation. But it doesn't stop people from doing that. And what people do is, well, we'll just do a meta analysis, and we'll say if twenty of the studies all show the same relationship, then therefore it must be true. And realistically, it's not. It's not true, and, and you really have to test that, and there's been a lot of tests of these epidemiologic associations in, in actual randomized control trials where they don't hold up, and that's where you have to really kind of put your, you know, put more of the weight of your evidence there, and that's what we're seeing is, uh, unfortunately, the epidemiologic studies drive headlines, and, you know, we see it every day. Every day we'll see some population-based studies where they'll say that yeah. this or that means this, and it'll, it'll sell it'll sell newspaper articles it'll, it'll get clicks on the website and you know we just we did just never ends and, and 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 certainly there's people that stand to make money behind these associations and they keep driving it out there and it's and it's used as a tool and it's just you know it's it, it just get and most people don't have the 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 training to realize that it doesn't mean what they what it says it means and they just kind of go with that and then it becomes a you know, it becomes ingrained into our into our culture, and, and we we tend to believe that dogmatically. And, and when you actually try, that's why this all meat diet is so nice. Not that I'm advocating everybody does that, but it it very much shows that a lot of these assumptions are completely not held up. Uh, you know, when you actually put it in, in practice, practice, and yes, right, yeah, right. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I just wanted to thank you again for your time today, Dr. Sean Baker. And is there, you, could you plug your podcast, your website, anything like that? Yeah, sure. Uh, um, so uh, let's see. Podcast is called Human Performance Outliers Podcast. It's on kind of all the podcast platforms. Zach Bitter and I do a podcast. You know, Zach's a world record world record holder in the 100 mile run trail run, and, and uh, so he's we've got some interesting folks. Um, I've got a, uh, a book coming out called The Carnivore Diet. It'll be out I think this summer, whenever the publisher finishes tweaking whatever they got to do with it. Um, I've got a uh, you know neat website called meatheals.com where we collect all these you know really cool stories of people that have gone on meat-based diets and really changed their life and solve all kinds of health issues. We've got the World Carnivore Tribe on Facebook where we've got about 27, 28,000 people all doing a carnivore diet. Um, I've got my website, sean-baker.com. Um, and then I don't know when when is this going to be released? This podcast is uh, it? the next next couple of days. Yeah, so we've got a we've got another website coming out which I'm really excited about called animal animal based nutrition network.com and it's going to collect a lot of the science, a lot of the physicians that are on board. We're going to collect uh, the scientific research. We're going to involve the people from the environmental and the ethical side. We're going to involve a lot of the ranchers and try to bring this community together. And, and then there's going to be some political. Um, folks in there too they're going to help us to, to sort of try to move policy and so that is something i'm super excited about and that's going to be launching probably in the next few weeks so keep an eye out for that as well very interesting okay thanks again man for your time and uh all the best thank you very much Derek. appreciate it